Ignite your life with passion and purpose. Your health, your wealth, your happiness. Make it good. This is Modern Love with Dr. Brenda Way. A big thank you to Rainbow Grocery, our favorite grocery store here in the San Francisco Bay Area, for being our sponsor, because a healthy body is a sexy body. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Modern Love. I'm your host, Dr. Brenda Wade, and it is a pleasure to be with you again, and oh, have we got an interesting and exciting program for you right now. We are going to talk with someone who's become one of my modern-day heroes, Professor Richard Rothstein. And if you haven't heard him on NPR or caught him in any of his many, many recent interviews, you've missed out on one of the most important voices in today's conversations about how we need to change America. Now, why is this important to us at Modern Love? Because we're going to zero in today on one of the statistics that is most alarming to me as your Modern Love doctor. And that is we all know we have 50 to 51% divorces. You've got about a 50% chance if you get married. And that's not good. That's crazy, as a matter of fact. And you've heard me say over and over and over that actually the divorce rate, in terms of the research we've got today, should only be 12.5%. Because when you learn better, you love better. But now here's something. Better sit down for this, everybody. Here's something that's going to shock you. That divorce rate is 69% if you happen to be African-American. The divorce rate is almost 20% higher. Why? What is going on and what does that cause? What are the consequences and why is that happening in the African-American community? Because every community needs and deserves to flourish. So I'm going to turn to our guest today, Professor Richard Rothstein, who is the economic, he's a research associate at the Economic Policy Institute of Washington, D.C. I'm going to give you his website right now because you're going to want to run and really drink in some of this research and some of these facts, he's at www.epi.org. So welcome to the program, Professor Rothstein. Thank you very much. So I want to ask you, why are African Americans still struggling? They're struggling generally for a number of reasons. Uh, One is that there is overall greater inequality, great inequality in America today, economic inequality, uh, uh, income inequality, housing inequality. And so all uh, groups, uh, particularly low-income families of every race and ethnicity, are having great difficulty uh, moving up. Uh, Their children are not uh, highly mobile into the next generation. 
they are living in more concentrated uh, poverty neighborhoods. This is true of all people in this country. But in particular, African-Americans have another uh, uh, barrier, and that is a history of state-sponsored segregation, which is unique. We've generally forgotten this history. Uh, most people think that African-Americans live in concentrated areas and low-income uh, neighborhoods in ghettos. Uh, because of uh, personal choices that they make or because so perhaps of private discrimination. You said this was state-sponsored. Uh, yes. I just, I just got stuck yes. right there. State-sponsored. All right, so yes. back up for just a moment because I know you're going to unveil, for those who don't know, how the state sponsored this, but can you also take a moment and explain for our audience why the greater economic inequality, why the concentrated poverty is hard on people. I mean, it's obvious well, on when, the one hand, but then on the other hand, we're talking about families and relationships. Why is it so hard? Sure. When families are living in areas of concentrated poverty, their children, all other things being equal, are going to perform much worse in school because the problems that they bring to school are concentrated. Mm. If you have a school uh, in a middle-class neighborhood, for example, where uh, uh, some children come to school under great stress because they've experienced uh, violence and disorder, or they come to school with parents who are less well-educated so they haven't been read to as much as children, or because they come to school because they haven't had adequate health care, well, teachers can devote special attention to those children and their achievement will rise. If you have a school or a classroom where every child or almost every child is coming to school with those disadvantages, teachers can't devote special attention to every child and so the whole level of instruction declines. Uh, we spend much more time on, on discipline. Uh, instruction is remedial, not on task, not on grade level. And so concentrated disadvantage exacerbates the problems of individual disadvantage. So what you're saying uh, is that these children are coming to school, you know, for me as a psychologist, I would say they're coming to school traumatized. And we have all this many of them are. Now, you know, coming in, uh, Dr. Nadine yeah. Burke here in San Francisco, uh, who's a pediatrician who found that 90% of her patients when she was working in a underprivileged and economically the Baby Hunters Point area, where she had her practice initially, uh, those kids were coming to school unable to learn because they were traumatized and they developed asthma, ADD, mm -hmm. and all sorts of physical and learning difficulties because of the trauma. So this is part of what you're describing, isn't it? Yes, and what I'm saying to you is that if individual children come to school with uh, those kinds of conditions, we can do much more for them if they are in schools where not every child has those kinds of conditions. Mm. If they're in integrated schools, if they're um, not concentrated in schools where every child has those problems, yeah, or I almost thought every of child. That. That's very, very profound. I had not thought of that. And I come from a family of educators, all mm -hmm. all five of my sisters are somehow involved in education, as as was my mother, blah, blah. That's very interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Well, any educator, I think, will who, who is 
assigned to a school or teachers in the school with high concentrations of poverty and disadvantage is aware of this. We now have a national education policy which absurdly, to my, in my view, thinks that we can solve these problems simply by getting better teachers or having uh, teachers have higher expectations or perhaps firing uh, less effective teachers. No teacher can overcome these kinds of problems in a school where virtually every child has these problems. Yeah. Teachers so go can back, do if you a don't good mind, job. to the, the yeah. state-sponsored things that created this, and then let's loop back into what's happening to families and children, because this part, I think, is the most astonishing part. What the state did, what our government did to create these problems. Well, okay, as I was saying before, uh, families, low-income families in areas of concentrated poverty are having greater difficulty today in the United States, regardless of their race or ethnicity. But African-Americans have a particular history, uh, which is unique, and that is that the federal, state, and local governments assigned them to segregated neighborhoods of extreme disadvantage. We have a national myth, uh, we call it de facto segregation, that the reason that African Americans are concentrated in, in ghettos is because they choose to be so or because there's private discrimination of realtors who won't show them houses in other neighborhoods or because they simply don't have the income to move to middle-class neighborhoods. Those all play a small role. But the biggest factor is uh, 20th century policies where the federal, state, and local governments explicitly assigned African-Americans to segregated ghettos. And we've forgotten that history, and it once was well known. So, for example, in the, the 1930s, when the public housing program first began, the public housing program was created uh, during the New Deal, during the Franklin Roosevelt administration, at a time when there was an enormous civilian housing shortage, and it was mostly for white families. Middle-class whites and working-class whites couldn't find private housing, and public housing was the most desirable housing available to them. The public housing program began in the 1930s as a segregated program. Separate, program, separate projects were built for African-Americans and for white families. Uh, they created segregation in cities where segregation hadn't previously existed. At that time, many uh, urban areas uh, had uh, integrated neighborhoods. Uh, it's not to say that every other home was occupied by a person of a different race. There might have been clusters here and there, but overall neighborhoods, many neighborhoods were integrated because both uh, working class white immigrant families and uh, workers and, and African Americans had to live close enough to the factories where they worked to be able to walk to them. Ah, so that's interesting. Yes. So they were integrated neighborhoods, and the government built public housing. The government segregated them by demolishing many of these neighborhoods and putting public housing in their place that was segregated. Wow. So, for example, in, in, in St. Louis, where uh, I've done a lot of study because of the Ferguson uh, events, uh, the St. Louis uh, Housing Authority, along with the federal government, demolished uh, an integrated neighborhood uh, near downtown. It was called the Soto Car Neighborhood. They built a black public housing project in that neighborhood that had previously been 55% white, 45% black, and a separate white public housing project further south, away from the downtown area, oh. creating the segregated uh, downtown area that we know today. And this happened in many, many places. So what year was that 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 happened? 
Well, it started in the 1930s, uh, okay. the, uh, and it continued on in World War II during the second great migration of African Americans to urban areas to work in the defense industry. Uh, the uh, federal government had to build housing to house all these defense workers that were flooding into urban areas. And again, they built segregated public housing. Not, this was not in the South. This was in the North throughout the country. Uh, in Richmond, California, for example, uh, there were 270 African Americans living in Richmond uh, in 1940 before World War II. By the end of World War, uh, World War II, there were 14,000 African Americans living in Richmond, half of them in segregated public housing units wow. that were placed uh, along the railroad tracks in, in uh, industrial areas, while public housing projects for whites uh, also, defense workers who had come to Richmond in, in seek of work were placed closer to residential areas uh, farther east, uh, uh, in, and some of the public housing that was built for whites was actually uh, permanent and quite good housing. Uh, this so, was true so uh, throughout the Bay Area and throughout the country. So how did the government make these decisions? I'm astonished that they just well, they, came in and they said, they okay, we're going to... Go ahead. Yeah, segregation was the policy of the uh, federal government. Uh, it continued through World War II. I'll, I'll give you this, uh, this story. In 1949, when there was still a civilian housing shortage because uh, so much material had been appropriated for war production during World War II and the civilian economy still hadn't recovered, President Truman proposed a national public housing program uh, that would vastly expand the supply of public housing. This was in 1949. Mm -hmm. There were Republicans in Congress at that time who were opposed to any public housing. This had nothing to do with race. They were opposed to any public housing because uh, they were opposed to any public involvement in the private sector. But they figured out that one way to defeat public housing was to introduce what we call a poison pill amendment. We still have these today in Congress. Right, yes. They're amendments yes. which are attached to a bill, and if the amendment passes, then the whole bill uh, will fail. Exactly. Well, Republicans proposed an amendment to the 1949 National Housing Act requiring that public housing be integrated, oh. knowing full well that if that amendment passed, then Southern Democrats would vote against public housing entirely and the bill would be defeated. So they proposed this amendment. Liberals who were in favor of public housing um, rounded up their colleagues to vote against the integration amendment. The integration amendment was defeated and the 1949 Housing Act went forward, uh, permitting local authorities to segregate public housing more and the federal government supported those. Right. Yes, more but segregation. The other thing so for that's example, built uh, in, yeah, there's yeah. one thing here that jumps out at me. What's built into this when you describe where the housing for African Americans was built versus where it was built for Caucasian Americans. It's so interesting because you can see the beginning of creating the impoverished circumstances, the absolute ghettoization. All of it is built in, and it's enforced mm -hmm. by law. It's just shocking. So for a well, family by law that's or regulation, there, yes. Yeah, for a family that's Excuse living me? there, for those, I just want to say this. For mm -hmm. those who are wondering, now, what does this have to do with relationships? I want you to think about this. If you're living in a place that's more dangerous, that's not as good, where you are being treated less well, that trauma, that stress comes home. And traumatized people create toxic relationships. And it is very difficult to have a healthy relationship under those circumstances. 
so you're revealing some of why we have that 69% divorce rate in the African-American community, Professor. Now, keep going, because this is really interesting, because most people don't know the government created this by law. Now, well, I by regulation, that, by regulation and by law, yes. By regulation. Well, no. that was one aspect of this, um, uh, the uh, concentration of segregated public housing for African-Americans in inner cities. Well, after a while, the um, civilian housing shortage diminished, uh, after, especially after the Korean War, materials became available for private housing. And whites began to leave the public housing projects because of another federal program that was designed to subsidize whites only to move to suburbs while keeping African-Americans in urban areas. That was a program of the Federal Housing Administration in which the Federal Housing Administration guaranteed mass production builders of large subdivisions loans for their building costs on condition that they sell no homes to African Americans. Wow. So, for example, in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area, uh, you're familiar, I'm sure, with uh, the Westlake development in Daly City. Yes, absolutely. Uh, that's an example of that that project was built with Federal Housing Administration guarantees on condition that the builders sell no homes to African Americans. Same thing was true in the East Bay. It was true in the South Bay. Uh, throughout the Bay Area, the suburbanization of the San Francisco Bay Area and of every metropolitan area in the country. Levittown in New York, perhaps, is, a, is probably the best-known example nationwide, was all financed by the federal government uh, and by guaranteeing bank loans for builders on condition that no homes be sold to African Americans. That is Whites amazing because, of course, when we talk about federal dollars, and we know that African Americans are paying taxes too, fought in the wars too, it's so mm-hmm. shocking. I just, these two I'm just policies, shocked. yeah, because yeah. I'm thinking about yeah, these two policies: the concentration of of African Americans in in urban ghettos. Uh, built around public segregated public housing projects mm-hmm. and the subsidization of, of white moves to the suburbs. Whites could move to these developments like Daly City, uh, like Levittown, uh, especially if they were returning war veterans with and had no down payment uh, required by the Veterans Administration. Uh, they could move to these projects and pay less in rent than they were paying in the public housing projects that they had moved from. Wow. Uh, so these two policies segregated our metropolitan areas, every one of our metropolitan but areas. The, but here's the other thing, this economic difference, that they would pay less there for a home than they paid in rent in the housing projects, that takes my breath away. So I, you know, my yeah. my father and my uncles all fought in those wars, Korean War, mm-hmm. and came back with GI benefits. And what you're saying mm-hmm. is that those benefits would not buy a home in an area they that were was not permitted. They were not permitted to, to live in uh, white suburbs that had been subsidized by the, the Federal Housing Administration and the Veterans Administration in that period. So even though they were veterans, they could not spend any of their benefits there. So now we see how the economic divide got greater. Now we see how mm-hmm. the quote-unquote ghettos were created and reinforced through government policies, which means families were left paying more for rent in public housing than if they had been allowed to move into these subsidized housing suburb areas and use GI benefits. So the gap gets wider and wider and wider. 
Well, it gets wider for another reason. Um, those houses, uh, for example, in, in, in Westlake and Bailey City or in Levittown in New York, sold in the late 1940s, early 1950s for the equivalent of about, uh, in today's dollars, about $125,000. Those homes were affordable to working class and middle class families, but only accessible to white families. The white families who bought into those projects in the late 1940s and 1950s uh, then gained uh, three generations of equity appreciation. Those homes now sell for $400,000, $500,000, $600,000 apiece uh, in today's dollars. We now have a Fair Housing Act, which says that African Americans are free to live anywhere they want. But it's not a meaningful uh, right because now they're the going to pay the five or six hundred thousand. Yes, I that's see. right. They were well, affordable to working class families uh, fifty years ago or sixty years ago. They're not affordable to working and middle class families today. So uh, the effects, the ongoing effects of these discriminatory federal policies endure today, and they are responsible for maintaining a good share of the responsibility of segregation that we see around the country. Wow. That is just shocking. Now, there's one thing I'm curious about. You know, I've I've heard Spike Lee many times talk about, in one of his films, talk about urban removal, what was supposed to have been urban renewal, and my family suffered from that. We owned a mm-hmm. home. I was a little kid, and my parents and my aunt together owned a home in the Western Edition, and our home was bulldozed, and I think my mother, I can't remember, we were given something like like maybe $1,500 to move and find housing, which was impossible. So what about mm-hmm. urban removal? <laughs> well, this is another aspect of it. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned the Western Edition. The Western Edition is where the city of San Francisco built its first public housing for African Americans, while public housing for whites was built elsewhere in the city. It was a segregated program. But throughout the country, uh, once uh, urban areas began to uh, be more attractive to white businesses, to white universities, to uh, uh, middle-class residents, uh, many cities uh, purposely attempted to relocate their African-American populations. Often the racial uh, intent was explicit. And they did this by declaring these neighborhoods slums. They were, of course, in many cases slums, not all cases, but in many cases they were slums because the slums had been created by federal policy. Yeah, here in but San Francisco, it certainly was not a slum. These were classic Victorian right. no, that were not. Down. No. Yeah. Right, right. But um, if you take, for example, West Oakland, uh, you had a concentrated population of African Americans that had been done by by uh, explicit public policy. Uh, those were deteriorating neighborhoods. Um, they they were raised by urban renewal, as demolished by urban renewal, and black populations were forced to move. That's how the black population moved from West Oakland over to East Oakland, and then to um, later to uh, some of the outlying suburbs. So yes, that's this was a policy. Uh, it, it, uh, well, uh, think of St. Louis. I, I often talk about it because I said because of Ferguson. Um, the entire uh, black ghetto of uh, St. Louis that borders the Mississippi River um, was demolished in order to make space for the Gateway Arch, the well-known Gateway Arch. Uh, uh, it was demolished. Uh, the um, the uh, 
the Pruitt Igo Towers, uh, the public housing project. I remember those. They were they were once okay. in Time Magazine as the worst right. projects in the United States, and I will always remember that because mm-hmm. I was reading that magazine and I was talk. I was a college student talking to a guy I was dating who was not a student, but I'd met on one of my forays out into the community. And I said, oh, my God. I said, look at these pictures of these projects. This is terrible. And he looked at me and he said, babe, that's where I grew up. I was like, oh. Mm-hmm. I actually knew somebody well, who you know, grew up. Be interested in, you'll be interested in knowing that Pruitt was, eventually, was, was originally built for black families and Igo was built for whites. Oh, it was a segregated project. Goodness. And when the, the suburbanization that I talked about before began, and whites were lured out of the projects into the suburbs, IGO became a project for blacks too. And because the jobs also left St. Louis, uh, the, the economic circumstances of black families deteriorated. And as you said, it became the worst project in the United States. Well, as I was saying, the Pruitt IGO projects were demolished. The, um, the, the area where the Gateway Arch was demolished. All the African-American families who lived in those places had to go somewhere. Uh, A few of them were given um, vouchers by the federal government to find uh, uh, private housing. But the only places where they could use those vouchers were places like Ferguson, inner ring suburbs that adjoined the the ghetto. So the ghetto was in effect placed from St. Louis to places like Ferguson. And it it makes the conditions ripe for what we've seen in Ferguson. That's correct. Activity there. Now, the other thing, again, I'm bringing this back so people understand the connection between history, economics, and trauma. Because, again, mm-hmm. what works against relationships is having emotional trauma. And poverty is a trauma. Struggling to pay mm-hmm. your bills is a trauma. Stress is the key thing that undermines relationships. That's why more fights about money lead to divorce than any other thing. So connect the dots, everybody. Professor Rothstein is providing some very important understanding of what is undermining not just success for children, not just success in education, but success at home and relationships, because doesn't that make a difference in children's well-being? also. Of course it does. All right, so if you were to propose solutions today, Professor, what would you say the solutions need to be? Well, the main thing I have to say, and uh, I know this is not going to satisfy you, but the main thing has to be re-educating the American public to this history. Because so long as we believe that the segregation of our metropolitan areas is de facto that happened by accident or because of private choices, uh, we're not going to feel any obligation to reverse that uh, Mm. situation. If we come to understand, and we once did understand, this was the things I've described is not something I somehow uncovered deep in archives. This was all once well understood. If we come again to understand that the segregation of metropolitan areas was created by government policy, it was a violation of the Constitution, uh, our ghettos exist by policies that are unconstitutional, uh, then it is possible to begin to understand that it will take, will take uh, equally aggressive public policies to undo that segregation. But today there's no public support for those policies whatsoever because we're laboring under a myth 
that these uh, metropolitan landscapes were created somehow uh, by accident without a purpose. Wow, it is so shocking because I'm sitting here looking at the trajectory of my own family and realizing that those Victorians that were bulldozed in Western Edition today would be worth mm-hmm. $3 million because that's what they're selling for in San Francisco mm-hmm. now, if not more. And that the wealth was lost as well as the stability of family connections and relationships. Not all those communities that were bulldozed were slums or blighted areas. It's quite shocking. Right. So I keep That's using correct. that word shocking. Okay, I'm going to get over it, and let's talk about embracing this information. Let's talk about sending some notes to our representatives saying, hey, Professor Rossing pulled the wool off my eyes where the government had pulled the wool over my eyes, and I want to stand for policies that are fair to everybody that take pressure off families that are already under pressure so relationships can thrive, children can thrive, because when we all rise up together in communities, everybody benefits as communities rise and are healthier because the cost of taking care of people who are struggling affects everybody. So, Professor Rossing, what is your parting parting shot for us? What do you want to leave us with? Well, let me say, just leave you with one simple, very elementary um, reform that we could do. The history that I just described is not being taught in our elementary and high schools, in our middle schools and high schools. Our textbooks lie about the history. I, I use that term deliberately. Uh, they claim that uh, we have de facto segregation in the North. One of the things that the people can do immediately is protest to their local school boards, uh, to their local school principals about the uh, misteaching of the history of our racial past. Uh, they can familiarize themselves with this history first, of course, and, and as you mentioned before, I have many articles that I've written um, along these lines, and I'm not the only one who's, who's doing this. Uh, many, many scholars have written about this. Uh, they're all, uh, um, the ones I've written are on my website uh, that uh, your listeners can find. And I'm going to give that website again as we're closing, yes. But as people familiarize themselves with this history, they can then um, begin to demand that it be taught accurately to our um, students, both at the high school and the college level. Because as I said earlier, unless people familiarize with themselves with this history, there it's going to be many fewer opportunities to reverse it. Because if something happened by accident, it's easy to think it can only un- be undone by accident. And worse than that, I think people... Of, not just think it's by accident, they also blame the people who are mm-hmm. caught in those circumstances and say, why are you like that? I, I mean, I, if I had a dime for every person who said to me, what's wrong with those people? Why don't those black people do better? And what you're mm-hmm. saying is, hey, hard to do better when you're standing on quicksand. So let's protest mm-hmm. to the public school boards, everybody, and let's get some correct history taught. And again, you can take this podcast, which is archived, and share it. You'll get Professor Rothstein all to yourself. You can play it in your classroom, play it for your children, play it for your family. And let's be concerned about the impact on everyone. Professor Rothstein, what an honor 
thank you so much, everyone. Go and read those articles at www. That's www.epi.org. That's the Economic Policy Institute of Washington, D.C., where Professor Rothstein is a research associate. And thank you again, Professor Rothstein, for shining light on why people are struggling in relationships as well as economically and educationally. All right, everyone. Stay with us. Thank you to our producer, LeGron Green, our associate producer, Cliff Dunning. We'll be with you again soon with another compelling look at how you can make your love life better in these modern times. Blessings. <music>